This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Jennifer Beasley. Dr. Jennifer is a principal investigator at the Year Institute of the University College of London, and the Beasley Lab studies how patterns of neuronal activity in the auditory cortex are linked to the perception of the external world. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for letting me interview you today. It is a great pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, we usually start out by asking, how did you first got interested in uh, neuroscience? What is your experience? So I seem to be interested in neuroscience. Actually, when I had my interview for my undergraduate course, so I was interviewing for natural sciences, which is a very kind of broad degree. And the person interviewing me said, so what do you think you'd like to specialize in? And a neuroscience popped out of my mouth. And I remember kind of actually stepping back and being like, really? Oh, yeah, actually, yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> uh, so like on some level, I guess I thought about it, but really it was only then. And, and the beauty of that course is that you can start off very... Um, very unsure what you want to do and, and you gradually get more and more specialised and, and indeed by the time I got to my third year it was neuroscience that I was really fascinated in. Mm -hmm. And so it was during your bachelor's and then even before that like your interest in science was always there as before university or? I think I was I was interested in science both of my parents uh, my, my father is an engineer and my mother was a hospital pharmacist and I I was you know, I was certainly better at science than sort of artistic things. Um, so there's, you know, schools tend to then push you into medicine, right? So I did some work experience um, in hospitals and I found kind of things like seeing surgeries really fascinating, but I didn't feel like I had the people skills really to actually want to go and, and do clinical medicine. So... I had a brief moment where I got really interested in equine science and to give my parents credit, they kind of went, uh-huh, and where can you do equine science? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a couple of universities in the UK where you can do equine science. Uh, but I, I sort of realized that actually maybe doing a slightly broader degree. And by then I'd realized that, you know, there's only so much science in horses. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so, and I, I guess I sort of, thoughts I, I didn't really think much further than a bachelor at that point and then once you're sort of on the on the conveyor belt it seemed like the obvious thing to do was to go from a bachelor to doing a PhD and then sort of staying in research but I don't remember thinking at kind of age 18 oh I'm, I'm definitely going to be a scientist when I grow up yeah yeah so then neuroscience came for you kind of first as a thought in your head and then you got really interested in it and then how did you choose the topic for your PhD and how was also selection of school and stuff how was that for you? I actually only started studying something called neuroscience in my third year like before that I'd done experimental psychology and I'd done physiology that obviously included neural signals and, and neurophysiology um, so I felt really daunted by the idea of trying to pick a PhD topic um, when I hadn't yet studied it, because of course, you know, you're applying in you know, December, January to start something in September, October. So in fact, what I did was apply for a single neuroscience program. So 
back in 1990, in the mists of time, um, it was really rare actually in the UK that, that PhD programmes existed. Most PhDs were specific projects tied to someone's grant. And there were a few, you know, generally Wellcome Trust funded four-year programmes where you could you, you basically had another year to be indecisive um, uh, and try out a couple of labs in rotation. So I basically decided I would apply for this programme and if I got it, then that was great. Um, and if I didn't, I would uh, take a year out and, and maybe try and get a research assistant position or something like that to figure out, you know, what it was that I actually wanted to do. So weirdly, if you look at my CV, it looks like sort of, I don't know, in my second year of university, I woke up and said, I want to be an auditory scientist because I did uh, I did a summer internship in, in Jonathan Ashmore's lab at UCL. He studies... Um, cochlear biophysics and, and hair cells and, and I actually ended up doing molecular biology in his lab uh, which kind of convinced me that that was what I didn't want to do um, but it it made me fall in love with the cochlea it's just like such a beautiful structure um, but it was really accidental that I ended up in his lab um, I, I wrote to probably like 20 or 30 labs in London um, saying, can I, you know, can I squat in your lab for the summer? Uh, and he wrote back. <laughs> so that kind of was my first experience of hearing research. And then in Oxford, one of my rotations was in the, the auditory neuroscience group there. And I picked it mostly because I wanted to do extracellular recordings. I, I was just really excited about the idea of, of listening to neurons and, and really trying to get inside the brain. Um, and really it was it was that that lab felt like a really good fit for me. I liked the people. I, I really enjoyed working in Andy's group and, and with him. Um, and it, you know, it was about hearing and that was great, but it could have probably been about anything because it was a question of the technique and, and the fit and the people. So um, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in, in auditory neuroscience. <laughs> and uh, can you describe a bit more about what was your PhD project and like main results? I went to speak to Andy sort of towards the end of my rotation project and, and said, you know, I was very intimidated by him at the time. He was very scary. <laughs> I sort of said, yeah, I'd love to do a PhD in your group. And now, of course, I know, you know, a Welcome Trust student, you come with loads of money. So he was never going to say no. <laughs> But he sort of said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, uh, you know, uh, let, let's talk about it. And he, he sort of offered me a series of two choice questions. And by the end of it, we had a PhD, PhD project. So he sort of said, you know, do you want to do development or, or adults? And I said, well, adults. And he said, well, do you want to do cortex or midbrain? And I said, cortex. And he said, well, primary or secondary? And I said, secondary sounds really fascinating. You know, they, they just had a nature paper um, looking at how neurons in primary auditory cortex encoded sound localization cues. And, uh, you know, as a naive PhD student, I was like, well, great. You know, I could get me a nature paper, right? <laughs> I could just repeat this in secondary cortex and that would be great. So that was what my project was about to be, was going to be about. Of course, what I hadn't really stepped back and considered was the fact that the animal model that we were using, the ferret, had a really poorly defined auditory cortex. We knew where primary auditory cortex was and we knew which other bits of the brain were likely to respond to sound, but none of these fields have been mapped. So most of my PhD ended up being a really kind of boring... <laughs> boring but worthy uh, mapping of all of the non-primary non auditory cortical fields in the ferret. And we never really got as far as the interesting questions as, as to like what they might do and how they might differ from each other. Um, it was really sort of old school physiology of like mapping neural receptor fields and 
looking at how they were constructed and trying to figure out, you know, from this mass of data, we were sort of using for the first time high density recording electrodes. So we were getting a lot of data, but well, I say high density, you know, 32 channels, which seemed enormous at the time <laughs> before neuropixels had even been dreamt of. Um, and yeah, I stumbled on a couple of interesting things along the way, like all of these visual responses, because we were using a visual stimulus to try and find the edges of auditory cortex, uh, which are abutted by visual cortex at the back. But half the, you know, everywhere I stuck my electrode, I could find neurons that responded to light. So that's when I sort of got interested in, in multisensory responses in auditory cortex. But like the main thrust of my project was, yeah, anatomy, physiology, really just trying to form this roadmap, which, you know, has now turned out to be quite useful for everything that comes next. <laughs> but I didn't get there at all in my PhD. <laughs> Yeah. And one of the things I just to uh, make everyone more aware is that I, I guess ferrets are really common in auditory research, but uh, not in other fields. So can you talk a bit more why um, they are a good model in the auditory research? Yes, yeah, so they they started being used by mostly by visual developmental neuroscientists because they're born um, relatively prematurely. So if you want to perform developmental manipulations, you can do so at a stage at which you'd have to do manipulations in utero and in, in other species. And as carnivores, they have visual cortices that are sort of structured, you know, they have ocular dominance columns and things like that, that we see in the primate brain. Um, so that's, I think that's how they got their foot in the door of the animal house in Oxford. Um, and at the time, there were researchers, I mean, Andy and, and David Moore, who were interested in looking at developmental manipulations uh, in hearing, so things like unilateral hearing loss, conductive hearing loss. Um, so they you know, started using the ferrets for that. But actually, if you're interested in, in auditory cognition and, and sort of listening as, as humans would think of it, then they have a, a hearing range that's completely overlapping with ours, so it extends a little bit into the high frequencies. Um, but its low frequency hearing is very similar to ours, which is, is very different from mice and rats. Um, and if you're interested in human hearing, then things like pitch are really important. We think about pitch as something that is critical for music perception. But actually, if you want to separate out two competing voices, it's the difference in pitch that allows you to pull those two voices apart. And ferrets perceive pitch like we do. Um, they use a variety of sound localization cues, so interval timing cues. So a sound to my right will be louder in my right ear because my head kind of casts a shadow. But for low frequency sounds, I can also make use of the fact that the sound arrives sooner in my right ear than my left ear. Um, and like us, ferrets rely quite heavily on those timing cues. Um, and the kind of final piece of the puzzle is that they're, they're really smart. They're predatory carnivores. They've been domesticated for a long time. They're naturally curious. So we can train them in really interesting tasks. I mean, so in my lab now, we have animals that perform speech identification tasks, a variety of sort of sound localization or sound discrimination tasks, audiovisual tasks. There are lots of visual psychophysics you can do with them too. So they're really, you know, a really powerful model for understanding or linking neural activity and, and perception. Yeah. 
they, they sound like a really great model for uh, this type of research and also a really cool uh, model outside of mice and rats, which is uh, the usual. So then you did your PhD and then started your postdoc in the same lab to kind of wrap up your PhD project. And then how was it for you, the transition to PI? Did you always want to be a PI? Was it like an obvious next step? I think it was because I I kind of craved the security that's completely lacking from <laughs> an academic career path, right? Um, I didn't like the idea. So, I, yeah, I, I worked with Jan and Andy. So my, my postdoc technically was with Jan Schnupp, who was co-heading the auditory neuroscience group at that point. Um, but, you know, like I sat at the same desk. <laughs> we were all part of the same room. Um, but, you know, I worked with them to write a grant that would fund me for three years. So I had, you know, then that degree of security. But pretty soon after that, I was applying for fellowships and stuff very prematurely because I didn't really have the publications at that point. Um, but I guess, you know, that's how you get there in the end as you apply and you apply and you apply and you apply and you apply some more and you hope that sooner or later something sticks um and initially I was trying to stay in Oxford which you know probably wouldn't have been the best thing for me scientifically but for various reasons like I was I was very happy living there um and in the end my head of department there took me aside and said you, you know you're not going to get a job here and not until you go away and you know then maybe you can come back um, so at that point, I started sort of more seriously pursuing options in other places. Um, but it's hard to find somewhere that ferrets can, you can kind of set up a ferret colony. So that was, you know, the, that's a real challenge for people, people who are leaving my group now and trying to set up, but also, you know, any, anyone coming out of Andy's lab and wanting to stick with ferrets. You have a very limited set of options in the UK for places that can house them. Okay, so then you ended up uh, going to University College London in 2011. You started as a principal investigator. How was uh, setting up your lab? Yes, yeah, so I, I actually, so I was awarded a Royal Society Fellowship while I was in Oxford. Um, and I got this sort of Women in Science prize at the same time, which allowed me to go to Boston for a few months. So I had this really sort of and I, I interviewed for UCL while I was actually working in Boston. Um, so I had this sort of quite extended lead up of initially being sort of finally being independently funded in Oxford, which allowed me to do a few experiments to sort of, I was trying to set up cooling, cortical cooling and a few things like that, that I could just sort of tinker away at without any sort of having to build a new lab pressure. And then I had this really like rich experience in Boston working in Barbshin Cunningham's lab um, and came back and then had a few months in which I knew I was moving to UCL so I could begin to start. It was a, a lot, as you can imagine, a lot of bureaucracy involved in, in setting up a ferret colony there. So it was very helpful that I had a very extended lead time into that. Um, I also had a had a grant from the BBSRC at the time. So I was I was very lucky in that when I went there, I got a reasonable sort of startup package from them. They were quite supportive about giving me what I needed to get a ferret colony in London. Um, and then I also had sort of, you know, some money, <laughs> some grant income so that I could actually focus on physically building the lab. And I got really lucky with the first postdoc that I hired, um, who who's actually still in my lab now. And, and he and I and a PhD student built the lab together and actually... 
that's a you know it's a really sort of special time in a lab you're kind of all learning together and and you're building something and and eventually you get some experiments running usually the first time you do it it works perfectly right and then not the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth (laughs) so we had a lot of experiences like that um but yeah we slowly put the pieces together to kind of get the awake behaving stuff up and running which is what we wanted to do but because I guess yeah because I was lucky enough that I had funding for a postdoc and I, I had a PhD student who sort of came as part of the package um the stresses were um, in just sort of having the confidence to believe that you can do things like surgeries and stuff yourself that you've always done in a big team where, you know, a ferret surgery is a very involved affair. It takes several people. It takes all day. Um, and, you know, I was, I was going to be, my lab was going to be based at the Royal Veterinary College and, and their procedures are that you have a, a veterinary anaesthetist in the room um, for these things, which is brilliant but at the time was also sort of daunting because I'd always done that side of things myself um but the anaesthetist was very experienced and you know it it was it was all good Uh, although I had a few very like stressful periods before we did each of the kind of things we were trying to do um I used to amuse people in my lab by coming in and telling them what sort of what weird dreams I'd had the night before about turning up and, you know, finding a student on the operating table. (laughs) But but yeah, it was it was good fun. It was a good period. (laughs) Intense, crazy. But (laughs) yeah, I I can imagine does not sound easy to set up a lab. And so do you want to tell us a bit more about the projects you have ongoing in lab in the lab? Because you not only um, study ferrets, but you've also uh, done uh, research involving humans, right? Yeah, so I've always, or as back as far as sort of my postdoc, I did a bit of human psychophysics mostly to sort of validate the things that we were doing in the ferrets um and to also you know it's it's a it's a lot quicker to refine a task in a human to whom you can give instructions than to sort of train three ferrets the wrong way and then realize your stimuli aren't quite right so we've always had this kind of to and fro between human and animal work but then when I was in Boston I went there to kind of to do proper psychophysics with proper psychophysicists. Um, And we did some multisensory work and that was good fun. And it was was interesting to see the difference in sort of bureaucracy levels for human versus animal work in the UK versus America. So it seems to be a very different kind of ratio. (laughs) Um, And now, yeah, we, we do sort of, again, psychophysics for the purposes of sort of speeding up our animal work, but also for its own sake and and increasingly kind of clinically as well. So one of the beautiful things about being at the Ear Institute is that um, it's full of, most of our teaching is for audiologists and ENT surgeons. And we're right next door to the, or we were right next door to the Royal National Nose and Throat Hospital. It's now moved to the kind of central site, but it's it's less than a mile away. Um, So for example, yeah, we developed a a sort of a speech and noise slash sound localization task all in one um, with a PhD student, and we've been using that to uh, to assess hearing aid functions. It's it's a test that's been uh, included as a, an outcome measure in a clinical trial. There's some sort of real world output in human work that we don't necessarily see in the in the ferret work that I I like. Um, and then, of course, we can take stuff back from the human work and look kind of into the ferret brain and try and understand the mechanisms. So, yeah, we try and have this kind of to and fro between 
between the human and animal. I'm assuming there have been challenges managing people or learning along the way. Uh, how has been your experience more as a mentor for your team? I think I'm, I'm probably a better mentor than I am manager. <laughs> um, I, you know, train, like managing people is tricky, right? And no one trains you for it. Um, and I've been very fortunate that most of the people in my lab actually don't need much management. <laughs> so I try and focus on giving them mentorship. Um, and it, I mean, it's true that, you know, you get one PhD student through to kind of submitting their thesis and you're like, right, I've nailed it. And the next one comes along and they're completely different. <laughs> and, it, you know, that, that continues the whole way through. Um, I think like one thing I look for in terms of sort of people joining the lab is that they have the right kind of team spirit, I suppose. It's because of the way that we do the ferret work. It's so much more of a team sport than, you know, like if you work in mice, you, you, you can go take your mouse, you can do what, it, you know, do your experiment, go home at the end of the day. Whereas we do everything sort of as a team, everyone is involved in everyone else's experiments. So you have to have you know, a really high level of trust in everyone because you know, you're not always collecting, you know, you're collecting data for other people, other people are collecting data for you. And also because, you know, because they're ferrets, not mice, there's a, like, legally speaking, there's there's a, a high level of responsibility involved in that and, and the consequences of doing it wrong are, are, are like, non-trivial, should we say. Um, so really, like, there's sort of, a, there's a personality type that you have to be to work in the lab, which is you have to be, you know, open and communicative. And, and so far, I've always been fortunate that the people who've joined the lab have been like that and... And, you know, they're all passionate about what they do and they're brilliant. So it's a case of just trying to smooth their path and not get in their way too much. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds really great. And I, I never thought about it, but it's true that you have to probably have like a very great um, team spirit working as a team when you're working with more higher complexity, let's say, Uh, models. And so thinking about the research you're doing now and thinking uh, maybe in as a perspective of the next years, what is it like the projects that are ongoing and what where would you like to uh, continue to do research or maybe new adventures? Yeah, so I mean, I guess the research falls into the sort of the pure auditory stuff and the audiovisual stuff. Uh, and where we're trying to go, uh, well, and these days also kind of some hippocampal stuff, <laughs> which is a really sort of uh, bold adventure for me. So one one thing that's great about UCL is, you know, there's this huge density of hippocampal researchers there. So uh, when Daniel Bender, who who actually you know, starts off as an auditory scientist, said to me, hey, it'd be really interesting to look in ferret hippocampus. Um, we, we, we did that and... Uh, you know, it's, it's different. <laughs> it's different from the rats, it's different from the bats. Um, but in doing so, we built this huge arena uh, and under this arena. So I guess essentially what I'd like to do is to bring all of this stuff together into more naturalistic tasks. So I really think there's a lot we can learn from the sort of very constrained, usually two alternative force choice or go, no go tasks that, that are our bread and butter And I think there are always going to be pure auditory tasks or, or purely auditory questions that have a role for that kind of structure and that rigidity. But that's not real world listening. Um, and things like sound localization tasks, right, where we, 
you know, if you're a human, you sit there with a chin rest and fix your head in the middle of the speaker ring. If you're an animal, we train you to hold your head at a central spout again in a speaker ring. And some, you know, some work that we've done over the past few years was actually just to to ask, well, actually, if we let an animal move around and take a variety of different head positions, then we can ask our neurons in the auditory cortex encoding the position of the sound relative to the head, which is perhaps what you'd assume because the only access to sound location you have is by comparing the signal at the two ears. Or are there cells that actually encode where a sound is physically in the world? So almost like a sort of a place cell, but for sounds. And to our surprise, we found some of these latter cells that you would never have found if you had an animal fixed in position at the middle of the speaker ring because the position in the world and the position uh, relative to the head are completely correlated with one another. You have to break that correlation by allowing movement. Um, and, And to do that, we use really brief sounds which mean that if the animal orients its head towards them, it's sort of irrelevant because the sound is, you know, five milliseconds long and the animal's head latency doesn't start for 100 milliseconds or whatever. But that's not real world either. So like in the real world, half of the point of your auditory system is that when you hear a sound behind you over here, you turn your head towards it. So we've built this big arena. It's got kind of 48 sound sources underneath it. So the animal can actually, we can create this kind of, immersive auditory scene and the animal can navigate through this scene and what we're sort of trying to do now is to build up the sort of tasks that we'd like to use in this environment so things like a sort of naturalistic hunting task a bit like if you're familiar with the kind of cricket chasing that mice do for visual research either virtual crickets or real crickets sort of creating sound sources that that the animals actually chase and capitalize on their you know their their natural behavior um, and then use you know motion tracking and high density recordings to actually uh, and you know with or without visual stimuli so to kind of bring all of the aspects of the lab together into sort of single projects that's that's where you know if if the grant I submitted just before Christmas gets funded <laughs> where we where we'd like to go I mean whether it gets funded or not I think that's where we will go. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope so. And I I think it's really cool that you're developing this really complex, but at the same time, naturalistic approaches to studying behavior. And I think this will be really the paradigm change for a lot of research, not only on auditory cortex, but in uh, many other subfields. And I I think there are a lot of things, I I guess you've been a principal investigator and also involved in several other things for a while now. And one of the things I'm curious about, is there something that frustrates you in academia and in the system overall about either women or in general uh, that you wish changed? I see the one thing that frustrates me most at the moment, which definitely isn't women specific and is possibly UK specific, uh, is the number of really, really super talented postdocs who are desperate for a career in academia, who are absolutely brilliant, who cannot get a position and who we are losing to in the end, ultimately to data sciences or something else where, you know, where they'll do brilliantly and they'll have a great life and they'll get secure money. And, but, you know, actually they've got the fire and they've got the passion uh, to stay in academia and there just aren't the positions and there isn't the funding architecture to allow people to stay in any kind of secure way, either as a staff scientist or, or as a PI. And I, like, I worry for, especially for sort of physiology in the UK I really worry that there isn't a next generation who are really securing funding. 
there's a lot of people falling through the cracks and it, it kind of breaks my heart actually <laughs> um, um and you know the obvious solution is more money i suppose but i guess it's kind of more complex than that right <laughs> ultimately but yeah i think you know and and for a long time i think women have and probably continue to be disadvantaged but i when i look around me at the moment i don't see this as a a women specific problem i see it as a as a generation problem i think there's a gap there's going to be a gap because it just seems like everyone's pulled up the drawbridge and there's a lot of people who are looking for positions right now or over the last couple of years who haven't found them and are being forced to move on and i, I think it's i think it's really sad it's a real loss yeah and um in terms of like um being involved in other things organizing other things and being chair of conferences is there something that um you have specifically noted in terms of diversity for instance yeah so i was uh part of the program committee for a conference called uh, APAN Advances and Progress in Auditory Neurophysiology it's an SFN satellite that's been running for oh gosh nearly 20 years now um and i was involved in it from maybe 2013 2014 something like that for three years as a program committee member and then as the chair of the program committee and something that frustrated me when i started was you know it's a sort of traditional thing everyone submits an abstract you can check a box do you want to give a talk do you want to give a poster we score all the abstracts the top ranked ones are considered for travel prizes and for podium presentations and then you know from that top ranking you try and pick a a good variety of diversity but in you know across many axes so different you know people should come ideally talk from different continents different model species different topic areas gender obviously um and every year we would find that our top rankings were actually really quite well balanced but then we would go down the list and we would try and offer talks and well actually so they weren't that they were they were balanced ish but as and we would go down and try and give talks and then we would find all the highest ranking women had never checked the box to say i want to give a talk and german and we did we also saw a, there was like some bias like you know, more of the top ranking sort of abstracts were um were generally like male first present like presenters um so when i became chair we and uh, you know this was something that we as a program committee worked on together over a number of years but the change that i made was to say well okay let's just let's let's do two things let's blind everything so we'll review the abstracts without any reference to uh either the group or you know basically just remove all the authorship remove the affiliation sure you're going to guess there's only like three four ferret labs whatever so it's a ferret abstract you can narrow it down to four um but you don't you know you don't know who the first author is and you don't know anything about them and the other thing we're going to do is we're going to say we're going to consider everyone for a talk and then you know when we award them you have the option to say actually I don't want to give a talk I prefer to give a poster teaser or I don't want to do either the work isn't ready yet and that's fine right but and overnight a diversity problem was solved like the everything was balanced uh and when we went down the list and we offered the talks you know i think most years we had then maybe like one person who would be sort of when we when we offered them a talk said actually i i would prefer to give a poster teaser because the work is very preliminary and i don't feel comfortable giving a talk about it yet and that's fine <laughs> that's absolutely fun um and it you know i think it 
it's what all conferences should do. And I think many conferences are doing that now. Um, we did something similar with a, another meeting and, and indeed with Neuromatch now. Um, we blind everything before we review it. And it's a bit more work as well if you if you remove... You know, obviously, if only 25% of people checked the box that says, I'd like to give a talk, you only have to review 25% of the abstracts. But but actually, I think yeah, it doesn't take long to review an abstract. It's worth the extra work. Um, and... It doesn't solve everything, right? Because there are there are systemic issues in diversity in academia, and I think I think we're beginning to get on top of the women issue. But I think there are bigger sort of uns. Well, it's obviously uh, ethnic minorities, but also there's a, been a lot of talk. I think in in the UK recently about the difference in opportunities that people are getting, you know, way before we see them. So it's sort of at school level. Um, if you come from a, a more disadvantaged background, you just don't get the exposure to people who might tell you that it could be fun to be a scientist or who might say, well, you know, if you write to a lab, you could do some work experience there. Um, so I think there, there's a lot to do. And there's, I mean, there are some really great programs that are trying to solve that now. So something um, that we've been involved in since it started is, is something called an inter-science program, which operates in the UK and gets, um, I think, the teenagers who apply to it have to be eligible for free school meals. So it, it specifically targets less advantaged um, A-level students and gets them work experience and provides them with mentorship. And I really think that, you know, we need to do things like make sure that our conferences are representative, but we also need to kind of make sure that our pipeline into academia in the first place is as diverse as it can possibly be. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're, we can't even measure the people we're losing along the way. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really uh, an interesting point and um, a really cool initiative because actually, I mean, if there is not diversity to begin with, then there is even no point of kind of fighting for it uh, later on. So yeah, that's that's a really cool initiative. Thank you for sharing that. And um, has there been a challenge into uh, how your family life integrates into your scientific life? Because this is also a challenge for a lot of people in academia. Yes, yeah, so I have I have two daughters. Um, they're now four and seven. So my lab was sort of, I guess, four five years into the making when when my first daughter came along, which I think was really, yeah, like it was no there was no master plan. It was <laughs> it was just how it happened. Uh, but I was really lucky because I had a team of people in place who knew what they were doing, who could kind of keep the ship sailing while I took six months out and. Um, and that was, yeah, that was all relatively easy and straightforward. I think adding a second child into the mix is always more challenging. Um, my second child came along a, sort of a year before the pandemic and, and she's also had quite a few health issues. So like that's been much harder, sort of managing all of that side of things. And again, you know, because I'm really fortunate in the team of people in the lab, I've and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm at the career stage that I'm at. That I'm able to be quite flexible with my time. So obviously, you know, if I'm if I need to be in the lab running an experiment or if I'm teaching, then I have to be physically at UCL. But I guess one thing the pandemic's made us quite good at is flexibly working around every edge, whether that's healthy or not. Um, so, like one of the things I think that academia is actually really good for is the fact that you are 
especially as a PR, you're master of your own time. And if you decide that you want to finish at four o'clock so that you can make your kids their tea and then pick up again at eight o'clock when they're in bed and work till late, that's kind of your business. <laughs> um, so I do a lot of I do a lot of juggling, basically, I think. Yeah, the pandemic was really tricky <laughs> with the sort of, yeah, one daughter was in reception and, and homeschooling a reception child is some kind of special hell. <laughs> or, or maybe I'm just really not cut out for it. <laughs> but homeschooling a reception child with a with a two or three year old around in the background, that's a two person job. <laughs> so my husband and I, yeah, my husband is a, is a therapist in primary schools. So his work does not have flexibility and it's, you know, he has to be there in primary school hours. Um, but I'm also really lucky that because he works in primary schools, he can do an awful lot of the picking up and dropping off. And it, he, I mean, he actually works part time, whereas I work full time. So I've been, I think I'm I'm very lucky that I can kind of essentially, I was going to say carry on. I don't think I carry on at, at the pace that I did before kids, certainly not before my second one came along. Um, but somehow the balls are, are somewhat staying in the air. I, I don't know. I feel like some of them are going to land on my head sooner or later. There are a lot of balls in the air, <laughs> but I think that's life. Um, I'm sure there's, you know, there's plenty of other things that, that make life complicated and children's definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah. And it's for a lot of women. I don't know what's your personal experience with that, but for a lot of women, there is also like a bit of juggling in their career of when to start a family and how that impacts their career. So for you, I guess you've been able to work whenever you can and adapt to your children's, but I can also imagine that it's a great challenge also. And maybe you've thought about how it would impact your career. Yeah. I mean, I think I think children are definitely net gain. I mean, they give you a real sense of perspective, you know, like when you don't get a grant funded or you don't get like nothing is more important than the health and happiness of your children. And that is a really, you know, I think as a postdoc, nothing was more important than my work, if you see what I mean. And that's not a healthy perspective. Um, but yeah, like it comes at a cost, right? Like you can't work 24 seven. Your brain isn't, I mean, actually, like for two years, I don't, I couldn't think straight for the two years of the pandemic. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, yeah, I made a number of unsuccessful grant applications and I look back at them now and I'm like, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I wouldn't have funded me either. <laughs> uh, so I think, yeah, I guess I, I, I do, I do wonder again how this period is going to have affected, yeah, it's, it's affects many people are affected in many different ways right and you know it's not just people with young kids who are affected um but I do feel like there's a lot of sort of talk in funding agencies where you know maybe there's a little box you can fill in with the time you uh you know the career gap that you might have had during the pandemic but actually there doesn't seem to be much of a box that ticks well I, car I carried on working full-time but full-time actually meant between 8 p.m. and 1 in the morning. <laughs> and, like, and it was less than my before full-time. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I guess one advantage of at least the sort of science I do is the timeline on it is so long. Yeah, it takes us... Yeah, every ferret is in our lab for kind of four years. So an experiment takes more or less three or four years minimum. 
And then, of course, you've got to write it up and then you've got to battle with the journals for however long to actually get it published. So hopefully the fact that everything is very delayed will make this kind of two year black hole that I think many of us experienced sort of vanish from us. Well, you know, like I'm OK, right? I'm a, I'm a PI, it's fine. <laughs> but I think I think people will stop thinking about the COVID problem sooner than the COVID problem will disappear, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really interesting perspective, actually, because, uh, yeah, it affected many people and it's still probably not noticeable in people's career, but it will be at some point. But and uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your experience as well. <laughs> I think we've already talked a bit about research, your lab, your experience and also um, some challenges. And I think we can finish up with something more light. I usually like to ask people, what is it that you like to do outside of the lab, if you want to share a bit about that? Uh, so I have two kids. Uh, they take up a lot of my time. Um, I moved just before the pandemic. We moved out of London to an area called the Chilterns. It's basically some nice hills. Uh, so to escape the children, I tend to run for the hills, kind of literally and metaphorically. I do a lot of a lot of trail running, um, and a lot, yeah. And I obviously I work quite hard. So out of the lab, I try and try and see the kids a bit. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And, uh, well, I think we can wrap up here. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer, for taking your time to talk to me today. It was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for, yeah, for the opportunity.